Uh, good morning, everyone. Again, welcome to Bellingham Covenant Church. Welcome to those joining us online. If we haven't met, my name's Phil, the lead pastor here, and uh, glad that you're here, that uh, we can spend some time standing under the word of the Lord today to listen as we walk and journey with Jesus this fall through the Gospel of Mark. Throughout the series, we've noticed that the disciples have stumbled a lot on this journey, and they tend to make a lot of mistakes, and I actually appreciate that that's included in the gospel story, because it invites us to reflect on some of our own struggles. It holds up a mirror to the challenges of the human condition, the challenges of discipleship, and we see again in our text today the disciples struggling, and Jesus catches them arguing about who is the greatest. I think this exposes a common human struggle regarding insecurity. They're uh, desiring to be seen as worthwhile. They want to be better than others, and uh, just that common, common human struggle is exposed in this scene. Well, we might not be quite as upfront about that or out in the open about that struggle, but I think we all, if we're honest, are motivated by that desire for affirmation, for achievement. We too want to be received well. We want to be great in one way or another. And uh, I think that is exposed in a lot of ways. It's evident in the way we engage in social media spaces. We long to be seen. We long to be liked. It's evident in some of the ways we strive for achievement in our workplaces. It's evident in the ways that we are overjoyed when people see us and affirm us and when we can feel crushed when we face criticism or failure. We too long to be known. We too wrestle with that insecurity. And at one level, it's normal for us to celebrate achievement and success and feel like we have a sense of identity and worth and purpose in what we do and in our work. However, it can become dysfunctional and disordered pretty quickly if we are driven by and root our identity in the affirmation of others and the achievements uh, that we accomplish that can be a bit of a dead end for us. Mary Bell is a therapist, and she works with really high-end executives in New York City. And in her world, she comments that achievement is the alcohol of our age. <laughs> It's, it has an addictive capacity for a lot of people. She coins this phrase, achievement addicts. And it becomes this addiction when we find ourselves abusing our life and driving ourselves into the ground for that next hit of affirmation or achievement. And so I, I think we need to be careful about the ways that this can be a bit of a dead end for us as we seek to locate our sense of worth and identity. It's always interesting to me when I see people at the pinnacle of success and fame struggling with this still. It reminds us that it's never really a thirst that is quenched if we're seeking affirmation. There's a well-known quote from one of the most famous pop stars in history, anyway, uh, from Madonna, and she reflects on this. I don't usually quote Madonna in a sermon, but it seemed to fit today. <laughs> But notice her observation about her experience. All of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. 
My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become a somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Isn't that interesting? I hear someone who has been celebrated as successful and famous and is in this struggle that seems to never end, this constant fear of being mediocre, always having to prove that I am a somebody I think our text speaks into this common human condition that we wrestle with. And Jesus speaks to his disciples who are debating and wrestling with who's the greatest and their insecurity, and he says something very countercultural. He he speaks to them. If anyone wants to be first, they must be the very last and the servant of all. I want to wrestle with this word today, and I want to ask two questions of it. First, I want to ask this question, why? Why does Jesus see this as this antidote to this constant battle to prove our worth? I believe there's some deep wisdom in this text, some wisdom that can lead to freedom, but also to some healing in how we relate to one another and to our world. So we're going to explore this why question, but then I want to ask this question, how? How can we wean ourselves off this deeply ingrained addiction to the need for affirmation and achievement? I want to listen to Jesus today. I believe he has some words that can speak into that deep longing, that deep struggle that we bring as human beings. And so the first thing I, I want to name is that I think one of the reasons why Jesus calls us to servanthood is that he desires that we would be free, that we would experience a new freedom in our lives When we reflect on this quote from Madonna, we see someone who is not free, in fact, someone who is deeply enslaved, right? This language of uh, fear of mediocrity, having to push and strive, constantly trying to prove that I am a somebody. This is the language of being enslaved and trapped in a cycle of never feeling like we are enough. I believe part of what Jesus wants to invite us into through this word is to be freed from that, this experience of freedom. As we place this teaching in the broader biblical context, and we see that Jesus desires to lead us into freedom. The Apostle Paul discovered that uh, as he encountered the gospel, he was freed from the striving to prove his worth and his worthiness. Now, it takes on different forms for us how we measure that success, that good enoughness in our life. For Paul, it was by keeping the law, by being this scrupulous religious um, person. And he discovered that this was a dead end, and it was overwhelming as he was trying to prove that he was worthy, that he was a good Jewish person. And in the gospel, or sorry, in the letter to the Romans, he encounters this wonderful freedom in the gospel, this wonderful freedom when he roots his identity not in his achievement or his accomplishment of the law, but in his encounter with the love of God. And so in Romans 8, we read, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For Paul, when he rooted his identity in Christ, he experienced this wonderful new freedom. 
a lack of condemnation that had been haunting him. And then I just want to fast forward a few verses into Romans 8 because Paul now picks up on a metaphor that's going to be very central in our text today and in the rest of this section of the Gospel of Mark. So Paul goes on to say, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption when we cry, Abba, Father, We see in Paul this distinction between the spirit of slavery, where we're having to work and prove and strive, versus a spirit of adoption, where we are no longer slaves, we are instead children of God, where we are brought into the family apart from anything that we have done, and we are loved unconditionally, not based on our effort, but because God first loves us. This image of adoption, of becoming like a child, shows up on our text. Jesus, in the midst of all the bickering over who's greatest, brings a child into the center of the story, invites them to receive this child. And and this picture of the child would become this central parable or image or metaphor for discipleship. And just a, a few verses later, the child will show up again in the scene, and Jesus says, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. We are invited to let go of this spirit of slavery and instead receive this spirit of adoption, to receive this posture, enter this posture of being like a child who is beloved, who is received, accepted apart from anything we have done, That is the core of our identity. And the the fruit of that, as Paul discovered, as I hope we might discover, is freedom. We don't have to constantly try and prove that we are a somebody. We already are somebody because God sees us in love, and he created us, and he redeemed us, and he drew us into the family of God. I pray that we might experience some of that freedom today, to let go of that spirit of slavery receive the spirit spirit of adoption as as sons and daughters of the lord the second thing that i want to notice why i believe jesus calls us to servanthood is that this has implications for our relationships with one another it's not only about this psychological relief uh, from insecurity, but also has the capacity to lead us towards relational wholeness and reconciliation. When we are in this position of striving and fighting for first place, it has implications for how we relate to one another. I want us to notice the word argue in our text that out of insecurity and positioning and, and seeking to be great, arguments and divisions emerge within the disciples. In order for us to rise up, others need to be pushed down. And that has been a common theme throughout the disciples' formation in the Gospels. They're, they're bickering, they're arguing, they're jockeying for position. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, they're annoyed with one another for not bringing enough bread to this feast. They, and next week we'll see, are suspicious of outsiders. They want to push down those who are successful but aren't in the inner circle. Can we see how the drive for affirmation and achievement comes at the expense 
of peace with one another. So I believe Jesus is speaking into that. He wants to create a community where we will be reconcilers, where we can make room for one another, where we can put aside our own agenda and seek to lift up the other. That can't happen when my primary motivation is my own elevation. So I I want to invite us to, to reflect on that. I think this can be a powerful way to bring healing into those relationships where there is argument, where there is conflict. I've noticed this from time to time as I've done a little bit of marriage counseling over the years, that often in conflict, we really know the problem that the other person brings to the relationship. And if that could just be fixed, everything would be better. (laughs) And I think one thing that I think is really empowering and freeing and healing is when we recognize what we can do in that relational equation, as we can focus on seeking to love and serve and put the other person first. When you see two people do that, something beautiful emerges relationally. Reconciliation can emerge when we say, I'm going to put aside my agenda. I'm going to be okay being very last and a servant of all. I wonder if that might be an antidote to some of the conflict, a pathway to reconciliation in our relationships. The third thing I, I want to notice in this text, why I believe Jesus calls us to servanthood, is that it's not just for us. It does bring freedom. I think it brings relational healing. But ultimately, God has a concern and a, a care for those on the margins. There's a desire to care for the little ones. And those who are on the margins, those with very little power, are often pushed to the side or trampled on in a culture that is focused on upward mobility and, and success. We're going to see this thread throughout the next few sections of Mark. In this section, Jesus brings into the midst of the disciples, he centers the children. In the ancient world, children had very little um, reputation or rights. They were seen as kind of a nuisance. They were uh, not really elevated. And the disciples later in the text are kind of angry with Jesus. Like, why are we talking about running a daycare? Like, let's, let's man up here and take on the Romans, right? It just seems like it's getting in the way of more important adultish things. Children had very little rights in the ancient world. And the next scene, Janet's going to talk next week about how Jesus wants to center outsiders. And so they're jealous of somebody else outside their inner circle that is having success in ministry. In a couple of weeks, Jesus is going to take on the concern of women. He's going to address some divorce laws that are very oppressive to women who are vulnerable in that culture. He's trying to center those on the margins. And he's telling us that my kingdom is going to prioritize the weak. And the way that that happens is by taking on this posture of servanthood, by not being so focused on our ascent, our ambition, our achievement, that we overlook the little ones in our midst. And I I wonder if this might be an important word to some of us today. I wonder who God is inviting you to center, to not overlook, to make room for in the midst of a competitive and busy world. I think the litmus test for a healthy spirituality is often how we treat the little ones, how we 
care for those who are in proximity to me. I mean, one of the most important things for me as a pastor is not how well a sermon goes, but how am I going to respond to my family when I get home? That's really the, the clear test of how I'm doing spiritually, when no one's looking, when I'm with the little ones. That's the challenge before me. I read a, a story a number of years ago by Tim Parks, and it's always stuck with me as a pastor. The story was originally published in the New Yorker magazine. It was titled Reverend, and it's written from the perspective of two pastor's kids. And uh, the, the pastor in this story is very ambitious. He's very busy. He has big dreams for the kingdom of God, and he's taking on new mission initiatives, and he's always on speaking tours and so on. But in the midst of that, the children are lost in the shuffle. And at one point in the story, this is what's written about the children from their perspective of their dad, the reverend, and saying his father had no time for chatter. Sometimes he barely took time to eat. He was impatient with mother too, impatient to be doing, but doing what? Winning souls for Christ. How strange and how disappointing for him then to have failed first and foremost with two of the three souls under his nose, Thomas and his older brother. I remember reading that and I was just really struck by that as a pastor. This call to pay attention to the souls right under our noses. Jesus is calling us to big things in this text. Take up your cross and follow me. But can we remember that taking up our cross is meant to be played out in the daily, domestic, everyday actions, not just in the big, glorious things? Jesus said, my kingdom is like a tiny mustard seed. And these small little mustard seed acts of kindness and care are what are going to slowly grow and bring about a new transformed world. So I'd invite us to center those on the margins in the midst of our ambition. Uh, this call to servanthood is not just for us. It is for the weak ones that God cares deeply for. That's part of the wisdom of this call to servanthood. The last thing I want to speak to in terms of this why, why Jesus would call us to servanthood, is that I believe that the Scriptures teach us how this is the power to authentic authority and influence. To authentic authority and influence. You see, the disciples don't just have personal ambitions, they have social ambitions. They want to change the world, and there's almost a, a parallel scene in Mark chapter 10, and it becomes clear what they are actually fighting over. They are fighting over who is the greatest, but who will be first in the kingdom of God. We recall that the, the disciples have a picture of the Messiah as one who will come with power and might to set up a new type of kingdom on this earth that will overcome their oppressors, the Romans. And part of the desire for these disciples is to have position in this new kingdom. They want a cabinet position when Jesus comes into power. I want to be secretary of state. I want to be chief of staff, right? Now, this is important because the disciples have legitimate concerns socially. The Romans are oppressive, and their values are being trampled on and compromised, and they do desire to be about the transformation of this world. And so we can begin to understand why they're a little bit concerned about all the servanthood stuff, 
Why are you wanting us to basically run a, a daycare when we should be setting up shop and, and getting organized? Why do you want us to be servants? We think we should be warriors, right? I wonder if this is a question we ask because we too look out on a culture that has all kinds of problems and we have legitimate longings for social change. We're concerned about society in our different ways. We have different things that are more prominent for, for us, but we want to make a difference. We have social ambitions. And I, I wonder if we're honest, if, if we wonder at times if this is an effective plan to love our enemies, to be willing to be the last to serve, is that going to be strong enough to face the very real challenges? Should we become maybe a little bit more aggressive? I think that's an honest concern that we need to address. Now, here's what I, I believe is uh, Jesus is teaching us and why this path of servanthood is, in fact, in support of our desire for social influence. I think Jesus is very much aware that there is a difference between power and authority. You can claim power but not actually have any influence or authority over those that you are seeking to, to change, right? I think just as an example, we're seeing this in Ukraine right now, right? Just because you have military prowess and power doesn't mean you can win over and have authority and influence over people, right? There's a difference between power and authentic authority and influence. And I believe Jesus models for us the way that this path of servanthood, this path of loving our enemies is what develops for us a, a profound influence in society. Peter's going to write about this in his own letter where he says, live such good lives among the pagans, among the Romans, those people who you see as your enemies. Live such good lives that they will see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Live such good lives, lives of love and sacrifice and servanthood that people can't imagine the world without you, that they will want your voice in the public sphere. They'll see you as an agent of, of goodness in the world. There's a story that I think illustrates this quite powerfully for us, and it happened a number of years ago in a large suburb in Philadelphia. And in the suburb, there was a state hospital that had a wing that treated people with psychiatric illness and people with developmental disabilities. And there was this new plan to uh, try a different type of treatment for these folks that were suffering. And it was part of this movement to move away from an institutional response to a more community-centered response. And so there was this plan that was written up to move people out of this institution into small little community homes throughout the city. Now, this came to the city council, and as you might imagine, there was some pushback from citizens. There was some concern about having these people in the community. Were they going to be dangerous? Was this going to affect uh, community safety? Property values was probably the subtext, right? So there was this meeting that happened, and a bunch of people showed up. Everyone showed There's 500 people, and there were some angry voices speaking against this proposal. The city council, in response to all uh, of this negative publicity, bowed to the will of the people. The press was there, and so they voted to shut down the proposal. It just so happened that Mother Teresa was in the area that particular week, and she was part of a dedication of another house for the Sisters of Charity, and she heard about this. 
And midway through the meeting, after the city council had voted, Mother Teresa walked in. She walked forward to the mic, and everyone went silent. The media was there, and she said, I plead with you, please make room for the vulnerable among you. We need to do this to honor Jesus. (laughs) I plead with you, please make room for the vulnerable among you. We need to do this to honor Jesus. As you might imagine, things started to change. And in response to the hushed crowd with the media looking on, one council member said, I move to change our decision. (laughs) And then it was seconded. And through the influence of Mother Teresa, that program shifted and those houses uh, were started in the community. Can you see that that's the difference between power and authority? Where did Mother Teresa gain that kind of authority, that she could walk into a room of 500 angry citizens and with a couple of words change the course of where society was going? She earned that authority and influence on the streets of Calcutta by taking on the nature of a servant, of welcoming the least among us. Jesus came in a similar way. He did not, though he was from heaven, consider equality with God something to grasp, but took on the very nature of a servant. And he calls us to follow in that pathway. And I want to encourage us to hold on to that vision because I believe that this is the way in which we influence and change and bring about the kingdom of God in this world. There is temptations like Peter and James to, to seek more aggressive means to change the world. I wonder if we can trust the one that we continue to worship 2,000 years later, the one who took up the way of servanthood, the way of the cross, through that I believe we see true change slowly happen. The mustard seed acts of kindness growing into this big tree of provision, of shelter, of care for the least of these. Well, I want to leave us with a a difficult question, and it is this question of how. Maybe we've caught the vision. We can see the why. Yes, that sounds nice. I'd like to be more free. I'd like to be more reconciled. I want to make room for the least of these. I want to be able to be a, a, have an impact in this world that seems full of problems. But how do we live into that? Because the reality is this path of insecurity, this Desire to place our identity and our affirmation and achievement is so deeply ingrained within us. It's ingrained even from early childhood. David Brooks, in his book on Paradise Drive, talks about how even in childhood, we've experienced what he calls the professionalization of childhood, and we're built early on to discover this identity that we need to be successful and competitive. We're created as little achievatrons, he says, And so it's deeply ingrained with us. And so how can we forge a new pathway, be pulled out of that rut? How might we experience a new source of our identity? I think this goes back to what Paul discovered in Romans 8. He discovered that we can't simply just route out that desire for success. That's a natural human longing. We need an identity. We need to know that we're loved, that we are somebody. If 
But for Paul, the antidote was to find that in a different source, not in the perspective of others, not in just doing enough to achieve, but to discover again our belovedness as children of God. I want to leave you with a quote, again, from Timothy Keller. He talks a lot about just how we overcome these idols, these false sources of salvation. (laughs) And here he addresses the idol of success, and he says the idol of success cannot just be expelled. It must be replaced. How can we break our heart's fixation on greatness in order to heal ourselves of our sense of inadequacy, in order to give our lives meaning? It's only when we see what Jesus has done for us will we finally understand why God's salvation does not require us to do great things. We don't have to do it because Jesus has. The idol of success cannot just be expelled. It must be replaced. That is how I think we break this deeply ingrained pattern. That was at work 2,000 years ago with Peter, James, and John. It's at work in our lives today. Can we replace that idol of success, of seeking greatness, and replace it with a renewed recognition that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life? Can we replace that with this hope that there is now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus? Can we let go of that spirit of slavery and instead receive the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters of God? I pray that that might set us free and set us on a trajectory towards relational and social healing. Would you join me in prayer? So God, I pray that you would be at work in our midst and that these words might come to life in our hearts through your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you love us, you see us just as we are, and you extend grace to us today. May we live into that hopeful identity. And from that, be freed up to serve, to step back and put others first, Lord. Would you do that work in our hearts as you continue to lead us and grow us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.